Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I love dogs and cats and the people who care about them. I'm here every week with authors and experts who can enlarge our understanding of the ways that animals share our lives and impact our society. Dog Talk is a production of Eight Paws LLC, which is solely responsible for its content. To hear other episodes of this show and other informative pet talk radio shows I co-host with top veterinarians and experts, please go to RadioPetLady.com. And accept this invitation to get one of the remaining founder member tickets to my Dog Film Festival and Pooch Party this October 2nd and 3rd in New York City, benefiting Bidewe. Only founding members can come to the gala premiere Pooch Party cocktail festivities with or without a dog and enjoy photographers on the green carpet step and repeat, sketch artists, a dog psychic, asking questions of my vet co-host and dog trainer Andrea Arden, and come hang out with me while enjoying food and drink, going home with a doggy swag bag filled with desirable goodies. Founding members get an all-access dog tag for all the film screenings on Saturday, October 3rd at Symphony Space, where the best seats are roped off and held for them throughout the day and night. It's not too early to get tickets now because many listeners have already gotten them, so there's only a limited number left. At dogfilmfestival.com, you can support the first annual celebration of the remarkable bond between dogs and their people. I have some wonderful women joining me today. The first is going to be Stephanie Matera, who is the spokesperson for the New York City Mayor's Alliance, something I've heard about for decades, well, at least one decade, and I want to know more about, and they're going to be very prominent in Adopt-a-Palooza in Union Square on September 20th. So that's a place we all need to be. And Dr. Rachel Barak will be here, an, an animal acupuncturist who makes house calls in New York City and the Hamptons and at racetracks. Learn a little bit more about acupuncture and how it can help our dogs and cats. Then Nicole Gallen will be here to, to read from her book, Step Dog. Very funny, very charming book. Stephanie, welcome to Dog Talk. Delightful to meet you. The New York City Mayor's Alliance has always seemed a fascinating and mysterious organization in New York City. And I understand it sort of advocates for animals in shelters or helps many rescues in shelters, but that's pretty vague of me. And rather than, you know, learning it all ahead of time, I imagine a lot of people are like me who don't really understand the mayor's alliance of what to whom and where. I'd love you to explain it to us. Great. So thank you for having me, Tracy. I'm really excited to be here. The Mayor's Alliance for New York City's Animals was founded 10 years ago um, and what we've done since that time is really created a coalition, and we help the rescue groups pull animals from Animal Care Centers of New York, which were formerly known as Animal Care and Control. Right. And so through that, we've been able to save 275,000 lives since Whoa. we started. Whoa, in 10 years. Yeah. So, it, so when in I say decades, years. it was exactly a decade ago that I had the pooch party to do with the dog Bible being published at W Hotel. And people talked to me about the Mayor's Alliance and some of the members came, but I I didn't realize it was its absolute infancy. It had just been born. I knew that New York City Animal Care and Control, as it was then called NYACC or something, was just the saddest, I guess, worst, one of the worst shelters in the country. It was high kill and just disorganized and depressing. And the Mayor's Alliance was, as I understood it, kind of a ray of hope. And you've gone way beyond that in the 10 years. Thank you so much. Yes, we're really proud of our partnership. Animal Care Centers of New York has been an incredible partner to us. They work with over 250 New Hope partners, which are the groups that pull from the city shelters to help lower the euthanasia rates. And 150 of those are in our network. 
And we're a nonprofit, so we rely solely on private donations and the donations of individuals and corporations. Even though our names as mayors, we're actually not a government or city agency. So was that kind of a mistake? I mean, when you were first founded, we didn't have a billionaire mayor. I mean, you could sort of think if it was Bloomberg, he's the kind of good guy. His daughter is very involved, uh, not just in horse showing, but also in in animal welfare issues. One could imagine that he just said, oh, here's a bunch of money, but it wasn't that mayor. And it really has nothing to do with the mayor. So why did, why is that in the name still? I mean, if Animal Care and Control changed their name, why did you guys keep yours? That's a great question. So we have discussed potentially um, making the name Alliance for New York City's animals, but we haven't officially done that just yet. But we did use mayors in the beginning because we wanted to give it that credibility and backing so people would know that we were working collaboratively with city government to help animals and help save lives. But we always, when we explain it to people, we are not a government agency. So we always clarify it when communicating with the public. And, and of course, in a sense, in a kind of crazy way, it puts you on the defensive because here you are doing only good deeds, doing things that everybody would love you to be doing. And it's, you know, the really the only hope that these animals have. So many of them are street animals and, and the city government shelter system is, is overburdened, overtaxed, probably underfunded and understaffed. And yet you have to explain, okay, we're not them, we're not them, but that just is our name. So none of my beeswax, but it'd be great to get the mayor's name out if the mayor isn't directly involved. Just because sometimes it's good, I guess, when an organization is starting to get that imprimatur of, you know, we are, the, we're, we're real, we're not just a bunch of crazy people, you know, that are backyard re- saviors or something. But I guess we all are a little doubtful about government and government's involvement in many things. And I guess government's involvement in animal care and control is never really works that well. I mean, is there any place that you know of in the country where the city does or the town or the county does a great job? It seems to me it's all the private people and alliances like yours that are doing the real heavy lifting. I really can't speak to that. Uh, you know, as a, I'm a volunteer spokesperson for the Mayor's Alliance for New York City Animals, and I've been with them for five years. And my experience is really focused on working with their organization. And I've met incredible people through this work. Uh, Everyone's really committed. We've worked with a lot of wonderful corporations like PECO and PECO Foundation, um, you know, to really bring these events to the people. And that's why we really do partner with these great organizations. They have a huge social media following. We're able to get the word out about rescue and adoption. Uh, You know, only 30% of people and American households are rescuing. So when you think about it, there's still a huge opportunity to really educate the public on why adoption is the best option and not to buy animals from pet stores or to go to breeders. It's really preferable to go to shelters. There's amazing animals. I have four rescue pets of my own. And so I think we've done a lot of great work and I know a lot of other communities are very committed to helping animals, but I can only speak to what, what we've done. Well, that that's very diplomatic of you, and diplomacy is great. I'm sure I could learn a whole lot from you, and those listening are laughing rather loudly, like, yeah, not so much opinion, a little bit more, you know, like, look at the gray area. And I didn't even realize you were a volunteer. So you're a spokesperson, and you're yeah. doing this interview, and you're doing, I'm sure, many events where you have to show up, including Adopt-a-Palooza that we'll talk about. And you're totally volunteering. That's a that's a tough job, Stephanie, because, in fact, if people ask a question, and I ask it in all loving supportiveness, but it has a little 
potentially prickly bit to it, you have to be pretty careful, right? I mean, you're speaking for a group of people, all of whom have, you know, dedicated, just like you, years and years of their lives to this cause. Absolutely. And I definitely take my role extremely seriously. Um, You know, there's an old adage that says just because uh, volunteers don't get paid, it's not because um, they're not, they don't have a value. It's because they're priceless. So I've always kind of believed that. And that's why I do volunteer. Um, But my training is from NYU. I actually have my master's in PR and corporate communication. Oh, my goodness. Oh, you're very well trained. Oh, my lordy, lordy. You should work in PR, one of the places that gets $40,000 a month to to fix problems or to make people sound wonderful. That's That's very impressive. Thank you so much. So um, one of the things I always say, too, is that when you invest in education, you're not just investing in yourself, you're investing in your community. So for me to be able to take my education and then use it for social good and help animals uh, is really just a full circle moment for me and something that really brings me a lot of joy. So I, I feel very lucky. Well, I feel even more happy that I invited you to have one of the the privileged founding member tickets to the to the dog film festival and to come to the pooch party i hope you'll bring one of your darling little rescues that would be so cool to have them on the green carpet and get their <laughs> picture taken and just have have a blast and most particularly the the animal psychic who's there any germani who is usually at the westminster dog show doing this for the handlers and the owners who want to know why did their dog not want to go in the ring which is sort of hilarious or why did they pee in the middle of the whatever when they were supposed to be being a show dog she could probably talk to a lot of the, the, the rescue dogs that are going to be at the party, of which many people have, and, and find out what, what are they thinking? What, what happened before now? We often wonder that about the rescues, right? How bad was it or was it not so bad, but you just kind of lost that home somehow? Oh, yeah. My boys, um, I have three dogs here with me right now and my cat. Um, I call them my office assistant, <laughs> but um, I don't... <laughs> One's in my lap um, because he's my barker. So I was like, if I pet him while he's sitting in my lap, I think he'll be good during this radio interview. (laughs) (laughs) He's been great. I mean, fantastic. About that you said, anyway, I am really, truly, genuinely thrilled that you're coming. I I had no idea you were a volunteer. I thought you were paid because it's a proper organization. Some of the people are paid, I'm sure. I mean, it's a very grown-up organization. And I don't mean that a volunteer is not grown up, but it's, you know, a volunteer has some limitations on how much dedication they can give in hours because they also have to pay the rent and they probably have some other kind of a day job usually. But I'm wondering, so I'm thrilled you're coming, hoping you'll bring one of the guys. I mean, heck, you could bring them all if you, if you had it, you're welcome to bring somebody else as a handler if you want. They can be in the, there's going to be a a mini dog (laughs) fashion show. Ada Nieves, who does so much work with the Mayor's Alliance. She's mad for the Mayor's Alliance. She said to me, nobody does better because you spread the wealth everywhere. So when, you know, money comes in or there's somebody wants to do good, the Mayor's Alliance is there to help funnel it to the good of which there are so many in New York, rescue groups saviors of various kinds, whether it's feral kittens or or dogs, the Satos dogs from Puerto Rico. Um, you do such an amazing job of that. And then the, the film festival on the Saturday has a lot of films that have rescue as one of their themes. But let's talk about Adopt-A-Palooza because that is such a, a cool and amazing and very New York event. I know you did a very successful one in Brooklyn, but in on September yeah. 20th, which is a Sunday, you're going to have another one in Union Square. And as I understand it, your previous ones have been just huge. Thousands of people showed up and tons of of vans and, and cars with dogs 
and I guess cats too for rescue by we, which is the official beneficiary of the dog film festivals can have a big old adoption van and lots of animals there to meet. Exactly. So Adopt-A-Palooza is New York City's original mega pet adoption event. And so we bring it annually to Union Square. And, and now actually we've been doing it twice a year because we've just had such great success. And as you mentioned, we did it for the first time in Brooklyn just about a month ago. Um, the reason why these events are so important is we get about 75% of the animals adopted. Wow. It's really easy to get the animals in front of the people. And so that's really their best chance. And as you know, Union Square is a hotbed of shoppers, farmers yes. market, commuters yes. coming up through the subway. So it's great. Some, you know, a lot of people come prepared looking to adopt and other people, you know, have been thinking about adopting. And here we are, you know, making it really um, easy and accessible for them to see and meet our animals. So on September 20th, we'll have 300 dogs, cats and rabbits for adoption. Oh, bunnies. Yes, and they make great pets. And Especially in New York City. Of our group. Great apartment pets, super apartment pets. Yes, you can litter box train them. Um, they're very, very intelligent animals um, and very, very sweet. So we will have, as I mentioned, about 40 groups there, uh, which is wonderful for them as well to raise awareness about the work that they do. And it'll be from 12 to 5. We'll have activities for kids like face painting. Um, we'll have you know, the Office of Emergency Management there teaching you about how to be prepared for your pets in an emergency, microchipping, licensing for dogs. So it's really a great way not only to adopt, but if you already have a pet, to come and learn more about being a responsible pet owner and really getting educated on what you need to do to take really the best care of your pets that you can. Now, when you say that 75% of them get adopted, I know that, that one of the things that puts people off to adoption is that in a, in a county sh- shelter or a city shelter, it's pretty cheap and pretty easy. You come in, you say you want the animal, maybe you have to fill out a form that you're not a felon, but maybe that's irrelevant because actually it should be irrelevant. Um, what does that got to do with pet ownership? Nothing really. And you can go home with the animal as I understand it. I mean, I've adopted some of my wives even from Southampton Shelter. It was, I don't know, like a license fee, $15. And, you know, they, you just fill out a form. and like, that was easy. I mean, maybe now considered too easy. Maybe it's not that easy anymore. Whereas a, a, other groups, some foster rescue groups make it so onerous, Stephanie. And we all understand the reasons. They've seen so many abandoned, abused dogs and cats. They've seen all the heartbreak. They want to make sure the person who's adopting is, quote, unquote, the right person and is going to offer the animal the very best by their view of what the very best is. But it's often kind of creates a barrier to adoption because, okay, you fill out a four-page form. We can all do that. And the house visit, okay, if they want to do that. But then more and more questions. But how many hours will you be out of the house? And how fenced is your yard? And what are you going to feed? How do you adopt out 75% of these animals? Is it on the spot or do people fill out applications and they get contacted later? Is it, does it kind of cut through some of the red tape and make it easier? That's a great question. So each of our groups has their own protocol and processes. So really when adopters are going around meeting animals, they're getting also a feel for the different groups and what their rules are and how they're going to be vetted and, and checked. All the groups will have you fill out an application. All of them will require a fee, but that fee can vary by the group that you choose. They're all going to ask you for your license and identification and a reference. You definitely need a character reference when you're adopting a pet. It's very important. 
and a vet check. A lot of them will ask you to provide a vet reference because if you have had pets in the past, we want to know that you did take good care of them, that they were up to, uh, up to date on their you know, required vaccinations and things like that. So I really think that they're not asking a lot of people to, to adopt an animal, but it is a commitment. And so you need to be aware of those things. And I think if we made it too easy, maybe people wouldn't take adoption as seriously as they should because animals can live, as you know, depending on the type of animal you have, dogs often 15 years. So that is a, is a pretty big commitment. And so you want to make sure that you know what you're getting into. Um, and whether they're a same-day adoption or not, that also depends on the group. Some groups do adopt same-day. And that's wow. why we're able to, yeah, we're able to report on the high, you know, adoption numbers by the end of the day because a lot of them did go home. And that's great for the yeah. animals because they spent their last night in a rescue or shelter foster home. They went home. So that's great. And others, you know, might take a few days. Um, but if you really want a pet, I think it's worth the effort and the time that you have to put in. I think that's a good point. And I guess meeting the people in charge of the individual smaller or even medium or large size rescues, they're looking at you eye to eye. I think there's not enough human contact, forget contact with animals in the modern world. So if everything's done in cyberspace, and people are filling in forms online and answering things in email. The people running the rescue or shelter, they never set eyes on the potential adopter. They rarely even talk to them. And I'm sure that makes the person giving the animal to its new home a little wary. Because as we know, on the Internet, anyone can claim to be anything. You know, I mean, cyber, you know, like falsehoods kind of thing. So I would think that being able to look them in the eye and sort of shake hands and see how they touch or deal with the dog or cat has to add a kind of level of comfort for the for the people that have been looking after these animals and want them to go to the best place or for the adopter to understand the level of commitment and dedication that the volunteers have because they're all volunteers in really advocating for that pet to get the best possible placement and i guess when you do that love exactly. it for a sight thing you know we've all had that happen with pets i'm sure some of your boys, you looked at them and you were like, the ding, the ding, that's it. <laughs> and you, who can explain it? It's just nutty. But it happens. And I guess to be able to do it face-to-face -face yeah. is pretty cool. It's really, it's really pretty cool. When you said the number earlier that 30% of American homes, only 30% have a rescued pet, do you mean of all mm -hmm. households or of households with a pet? Households with a pet. Wow. That's surprising to me. I sort of thought you meant all households, and why don't we encourage more people to have pets, which is all good by me. You're saying, that, <laughs> you know, like, what? You people don't have a dog. You know, I meet people like that periodically. It's very disconcerting. They look at me funny, like, what do you do for a living? Or, oh, what's the dog film festival? And I say, do you have a dog? And, and they go, no. And you think, you don't? Of course, there are lots of humans that live animal-free. That's a perfectly valid choice, but I'm sure lots more people could be encouraged to give it a try. You might like it. <laughs> only 30% of those who have animals, only 30% came from shelters? God, I'm amazed because I thought, I really did think it was more than that. Yeah. I did too. And I think maybe because I've been in this little bubble of rescue, you know, I'm not yes. really, yes. I just always think about it. But I guess maybe the general public hasn't been as well educated as they should be. And there maybe aren't enough awareness campaigns. And so we have a lot of um, room for improvement, yes. but it's, it's good. And um, we just had an amazing event. I'm sure you heard about it. NBC's Clear the Shelters. 
um, last weekend. And it was incredible. I mean, 20,000 animals found new homes because the media was raising awareness. And um, people were winding up the night before. Was that just in New York City? No, that was nationally. Um, And so what they did is they leveraged their local affiliates and, you know, did a lot of promo in advance. um, And then people were lining up the night before to adopt animals. And maybe some of them were people who never thought about rescue. So, you know, I think we're moving in a good direction and it's great to have media partnerships and, and your show as well, getting the word out. Well, unfortunately, I think I'm often preaching to the converted, but that's okay. It's okay (laughs) that all of us have that extra level of awareness. It's like, you only have two dogs? I don't understand. You couldn't have room for a third plus a cat? You know, look at you. You're living in an apartment, and you're already, you got four. So I think everyone could, we could all add an extra mouth to feed. It wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't hoit. And, and I don't know, it could be an inspiration to your next door neighbor. You know, if you can't fight them, join them. More, more pets in, in more places is better. Stephanie, I'm so looking forward to meeting you and I hope one or more of your of your boys at the at the pooch party for the Dog Film Festival and hoping that you can sneak away for the whole day on Saturday, October 3rd and see all the movies. They're going to just boggle your mind. They are just so funny and touching and original and interesting and it's going to be a pretty cool experience. I can't wait to meet you. And a thousand thanks for what you're doing as a volunteer. Uh, you're so polished and so charming and, of course... We, we have to give NYU some credit for that and also your own dedication. You're very lucky to have such, <laughs> Thank a, you. such a fancy spokesperson for free. Thank you so much. You have a great day, and I look forward to seeing you very soon. Thank you so much. Take care. We are pleased to support the Catnip Allergy Study. Are you allergic to cats? Does your cat or the cat of a friend or family member cause you to sneeze or get itchy, watery eyes? If so, you may be qualified to participate in Catnip, a clinical study of an investigational drug combined with allergy shots. Researchers are screening cat-allergic individuals at their study sites in Los Angeles, Denver, Chicago, Baltimore, Chapel Hill, Seattle, and Madison. If you're allergic to cats and interested in learning more about the catnip study, go to catallergystudy.org. This show is also made possible in part by Precious Cat Litter, owned by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian in Colorado who's created innovative litters for the health of all members of the family with low-dust litters that allow everyone to breathe easier. Precious Cat's newest health monitor litter has broken new ground by allowing people to find the early signs of kidney disease in their kitties and intervene before damage is done, prolonging the quality and length of a cat's life. Dr. Rachel Barak, welcome to Dog Talk. It's just marvelous to meet you. Welcome for welcome, and thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Tracy. Well, the pleasure is that you're going to be part of the Dog Film Festival Pooch Party at the Doggy Shack on October 2nd from 6 to 8. So anybody who wants to meet a real live acupuncturist, veterinary acupuncturist, and discover the, the joys and the pleasures of having an acupuncturist come to your apartment in the city or your house in the Hamptons or elsewhere on Long Island, it's, it's a pretty big privilege. Dr. Amy Addis, City Pet Vets, is the uh, the veterinary advisor of the Dog Film Festival, and the two of you together offer some pretty complementary uh, modalities for dogs who are not well, but even dogs who are well. Are most of the people that see you or ask you to come see them, I should say, with their dogs and cats, do they have ongoing medical issues that are kind of like low-key, chronic, or more acute problems, or is or, or are there some that even see you as kind of like a wellness tune-up? 
All of the above, actually. Um, I think that in really acute life-threatening situations, Western medicine tends to work a little quicker and better than Chinese medicine. But there is a place for Chinese medicine with a lot of chronic diseases, such as degenerative joint disease, GI issues, urogenital disease, um, a lot of chronic skin conditions and arthritis. And even cancer, right? It's even a good corollary for cancer patients. Yes. I treat many dogs and cats either undergoing chemotherapy and radiation or dogs that have been diagnosed with cancer and choose not to opt for Western treatment. And did you get your training in China, in Florida, in Texas? There's actually more places in America than there used to be. Didn't Florida and Texas were sort of the two places where veterinary acupuncture was trained and taught? There are many schools now that offer acupuncture training. Um, I earned my traditional veterinary degree at Ross University, which is in the Caribbean, and then later went on to study acupuncture and Chinese herbology through Dr. Shea at the Chi Institute. Oh, very famous, very famous. Affiliated with the University of Gainesville Vet School. In Florida. Correct. And that's, I think, of, of all the veterinary acupuncturists that I've met or learned about, Patrick Mahaney, who's my co-host on the Radio Pet Lady Network show, Holistic Vets, trained there. It's kind of, well, for a long time, I guess, in America, it was the gold standard, I, I would say. Maybe I'm wrong, but it was like the place in America that brought acupuncture to the veterinary world in a way that other veterinarians could either embrace it as you did or the ones who might have been a little dubious or unsure began to understand the value of adding acupuncture to other ways of treating dogs and cats. Do you find that that home visits, this is obviously kind of a rhetorical question, but that having a home visit is such a more mellow environment, particularly for cats, that you can do your work more effectively because you aren't dealing with the stress the animal has undergone getting to a vet's office, waiting in a vet's office, being in an exam room, having white coat syndrome and so forth? Exactly. I think that it definitely creates a more relaxing, zen-like environment for my patients. And I think owners appreciate not having to trek over to see me at the office, too. Now, on the other hand, you cannot go to the home. Well, you do go to the home of horses. You go to their stall. But tell a little bit about being a racetrack acupuncture vet. I think that is pretty interesting to those of us that are fascinated and sometimes worried about the health of horses that race. But I imagine you see the ones that are having the better life, the more successful ones, the ones that are kind of the cream of the crop. I don't imagine the ones that have the less good racehorse life that they call it an acupuncturist. I've been really fortunate to treat some amazing, amazing equine athletes over at Belmont and Aqueduct, and they are all really well-treated and cared for. And we tend to use acupuncture to treat those kind of musculoskeletal aches and pains that come from pushing these athletes to their to their peak performance and making sure they feel as comfortable and as happy and ready to run as possible. Now, I was used to be in the hunter-jumper world. People know that from my mentioning it from time to time, both in the Hamptons and, and down in Palm Beach and also mostly in the West Coast before I moved to the East Coast or back to the East Coast. And acupuncture was very much in a horse show barn, a, a good horse show barn, a part of the regimen that was offered, even chiropractic as well, to the owners. But our trainers, and I, I imagine it's just the same in the in the racing world, the trainers make the decisions, what is done and given and provided to a horse. And it was often to keep them in peak condition, or maybe if they were n- kind of off their feed, which is pretty much of a horse world, 
term, even though it's used elsewhere. Do you often come in to visit a horse who just isn't quite right and Western medicine has no way to determine it? Yes, that does happen very often. Um, I will come to show horse barns. I'll do that at the racetrack, and often I'll make some house call visits to the Ruffian Equine Hospital on Long Island to treat in-house patients over there as well. And how do you, with your training or sensitivity, how do you discover, figure out uh, kind of the mystery of why is this horse just feeling blah? Well, it is a puzzle. Um, No two horses are the same, just like no two cases that are presented to me are exactly the same. And I try and use both my Western and Eastern diagnostic skills to offer the best, most complete course of treatment using either Eastern therapies, such as acupuncture and Chinese herbal therapy, Western traditional treatment, or a combination of the two. Oh, so you offer Western in addition. You're also a full-service vet at the same time, or could be? I'm a full-service vet for horses. Interesting. Uh, For for dogs and cats, um, I tend to just stick to the Chinese side of things and, and work in conjunction with their regular veterinarians. So those of us who have been to an acupuncturist as a human, one of the ways that I've always been uh, assessed, if that's the correct word, by, by an acupuncturist is they ask to look at my tongue and they feel my pulses. Pulses seems to be a very big part of determining what kind of shape you're in right then and there. And then during the treatment and after it, checking the pulses again. It, are pulses something you check in dogs and cats and horses? You're exactly right, Tracy. Pulses and tongue color and moisture associated with the tongue are a big key to my diagnosing animals from a Chinese perspective. It helps me determine what's going on with them and then choose which of the many acupuncture points to use in order to give them the best treatment possible. So where do you feel the pulse on a dog? Or is it like inside the back thigh, like in the groin area or the armpit? You don't That's feel it down by their, exactly by their right. wrist, right? That's exactly right. Uh, up in the groin area, you're feeling over the femoral arteries to get the pulse. And do you have people who think, well, I've tried everything else and the dog just isn't right, or I've tried everything, I'm giving the dog everything and the arthritis is so bad, I'll try this. And do they and do they question what you're doing or do they just like, anything you can do for us would be great, Dr. Rachel? Do you have people that are skeptical but have still called you or most everyone who's called you is already embracing the whole concept of Chinese medicine? I see a combination of the two. I think people are really dedicated to their pets, which is phenomenal to see and really want to do anything they can to help them if they're suffering from a debilitating condition. So some people are just curious and willing to try, and others have had great success either having acupuncture themselves, or I find that people are shifting towards leading a more organic lifestyle, and that kind of trickles down to how they care for their furry babies. And if you have a dog, let's say, that's on one of the NSAIDs, the Denimera and the Rimadil, the, the Medicam, a lot of us have these older dogs with such severe arthritis that while we know that it has liver toxicity and is a threat to the liver health, we still uh, really haven't found many options. I mean, my dog also gets a, a non-steroidal called Canine Active, and she gets Actify, and she gets a, a, a TRP, Tricox, something new that I'm trying. And all of them do add up together to, to improve it, but she's on also some some 
meloxicam or medicam. And I know that that's bad for her liver. So to those people that are using multiple, a cocktail of things to get their arthritic dogs moving and more comfortable, what does Chinese medicine offer? I know that the liver is a big part of the understanding of the wellness or illness of, of any creature in Chinese medicine. Is there something you can offer? Is there something you would advise people that are on yeah. these drugs to, to do? Is there something you can do to minimize the, da- the damage or the danger, the compromise to the liver? First and foremost, any animal that's on long-term non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, I recommend having kind of chronic blood work just to check in as to how the liver health is doing. Right. Some animals can be on them long-term, have great results, and see no detrimental side effects. Other animals do experience some side effects, and I think Chinese herbal therapy and acupuncture can be a great alternative, either to completely eliminate using those non-steroidals or to use in conjunction and hopefully be able to decrease the dose so there's less of a potential to cause liver side effects. So they're really, really a a powerful and underutilized tool. Yeah, and I do too, and I feel guilty because I've underutilized it, and one of my very dearest friends is a veterinary acupuncturist, so bad on me. I'd like to talk about some of the herbs that you use in a situation like that, which you might use for other things as well. What is milk thistle? And is that something that's just across the board seen in the Chinese medicine? world as a highly valuable thing to put in your dog, or is it only for certain conditions? Milk thistle is actually something more used in the homeopathic world than the Chinese. Ah, interesting. Actually, I use some other alternatives in, in lieu of milk thistle, and there are so many different Chinese herbs and combinations of Chinese herbs that I use in conjunction with each other. So I work with a wonderful company called Jingtang Herbal. Um, and they are willing to formulate herbal blends specifically for, for pets. I like to treat each dog as an individual or each cat or each horse and figure out the perfect blend that's just right for what they have going on. And that was part of your training. I mean, you learned that like an alchemist or a, a pharmacist, if you will, but more of an alchemist. In your training, you learned all the, the different effects of different herbs, and then you come up with a potion specific to each animal? I do. Often there are some readily formulated um, herbal blends that I will use, but if necessary, I I kind of tweak them a little bit to make sure that there's the right proportions for each patient that I see. Because maybe I'm cynical. I I, I don't question so much about Western medicine. Okay, the tramadol, it's a pain reliever that humans take for migraines and my dog takes it. And I don't stop and say, well, is that like fresh tramadol? Is that good tramadol? Whatever the heck tramadol is made of. But when I've gotten in the past from an acupuncturist that I visited on Long Island, a bottle of sort of nameless, if you will, capsules that claimed all in Chinese to be something. Should I be suspicious? I mean, I hate to have this attitude, but I'm guessing your company's in America, and I don't want to be anti-Chinese. The company I work with is, is based in Florida, right? and they use the same quality control and equipment as Pfizer. So it's a company that yes. I feel really comfortable working with. The products they use contain no endangered plant or animal byproducts and no heavy metals. So I feel really comfortable giving them to my own pets and or taking them myself if needed. And I guess that's really what I want to bring up because I think that when we think of Chinese herbs, China, the word China's in there, and a lot of products that are made in China, fabricated in China, and shipped here, unfortunately, particularly in the medicinal or oral, anything that goes in you or your animal, has to be under suspicion given the lack of oversight and 
the, the proof throughout the last decade or so of how much contaminated stuff that doesn't have in it what it says, but it has bad things in it, is coming from there. I think it's important to understand that Chinese medicine is practiced in the United States and in Great Britain, where the herbs are either sourced or found or, or tested. And I, I just think it's important that we all realize that maybe what comes from China, we've all developed some, I think, legitimate suspicions about, but that the Chinese medicine practiced in other countries has adapted to the country where it's being created, right? Yeah, I agree. I think just like with any other medical procedure, it's important to research who you're seeing and who you're trusting your beloved pet with and go to someone that is a licensed uh, veterinary acupuncturist and licensed veterinary herbologist. Now, when you get a new dog, you've, you've gotten a shelter dog, a rescue dog. There's some Satos dogs that are going to be at the pooch party, I hope, that are from Puerto Rico. And they've all been spayed and neutered in Puerto Rico and, and been fostered there and then in New York and vaccinated and we hope not over-vaccinated. I think that's sort of doubtful given how, that they were street dogs. Do you think that when people first get a rescue or shelter animal that an evaluation from the perspective of Chinese wellness is a pretty good idea? I don't think all of us think of that. We're like, oh, let me check if they have worms. Let me see if they have heartworm or something, you know, dog from the south or what have you. But I don't think that we consider like the, the overall mind-body health that Chinese medicine looks at. And it might not be a bad idea. Maybe an animal is out of balance, if those are the correct words in Chinese medicine. And an acupuncture wellness visit would be a kind of great way to, to help that dog or even kitty make the transition to the new home. It certainly couldn't hurt. I think that acupuncture and Chinese herbal therapy can be very helpful with behavioral issues. Oftentimes, a new rescue pet is not so well adjusted to being in a new home, and they're super excited to be there, but could use use some help as far as adjusting quickly. Um, so I definitely think it could be beneficial. Or even an imbalance of something nutritional, an imbalance of, of other, th I mean, the, a lot of dogs have, have compromised nutrition or even compromised fluid intake or a lot of stress. If they come from a traditional kind of shelter, they could be there for days, weeks, or months, and there could be a lot of stress that isn't only emotional, but I guess can compromise them physically. I know so many times when I've gotten a dog from rescue, they're underweight, and they have a really hard time digesting good quality food because it's a shock to their system. And you mentioned earlier GI issues. I think Chinese medicine has a particular um, benefit to digestion, yes? Yes, I do agree that it is very helpful with gastrointestinal issues and promoting that normal digestion and bowel movement. So all these things are... I think really terrific that you have them to offer in people's apartments or in people's homes. I think it also takes away the onus of, oh, my God, you're going to put needles in my dog or cat. And anyone who's seen a dog, a cat, a horse, or a person have acupuncture needles, sometimes there's a bit of a tingle, but it's nothing has nothing to do with the kind of needle that gives you a shot that, that people think of as like, ow, or not even anything like uh, an allergy shot. It's exactly. Acupuncture needles are really, really thin and really tiny. Even for horses, they're very, yep. very thin, just a little bit longer to get into those deeper muscles. And no, and no so, complaints from any of the, and no, your patients don't complain. Sometimes they fall right asleep. Exactly. I love nothing more than when they're relaxed enough to fall asleep. But often, even if they are a little skeptical that 
they're happy to have acupuncture when a treat or two is involved. Well, I'm really glad that people are going to get to meet you at the Pooch Party, those of you lucky enough to, to have founding member tickets. And Rachel, how can fi- people find Dr. Rachel Barak to make an appointment to find you? Do you have a website or shall I just put your email address that goes out with the podcast of this show? I know people are going to be not just curious, but kind of excited to find that someone could come to their home. I do have a website. Um, my website is animalacupuncture.com. That's pretty and straightforward. On the website, you'll find a little bit more information about me and my practice. And you can also email me at drbarrick, B-A-R-R-A-C-K, at animalacupuncture.com or call my office. We're not going to give the numbers off the air because the people will find it on the website. But they're going to they'll go there and learn more and get all this info there. Perfect. All right. Terrific. Wonderful to meet you. Wonderful to talk to you. And I'm looking forward to everyone having a chance to see you in person at the party. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Take care. We'll be right back after this quick word with Stepdog and Nicole Galland. This show is brought to you with the generous support of Waruva, a privately owned pet food company that uses people food to make food for cats and dogs in their family's human food facility. All varieties of canned Waruva, the pouches of cats in the kitchen, and their more economical BFF, Best Feline Friend brands, are made with the same care and specifications that are used to make food for people. Waruva's owners want to feed their own rescue kitties, for whom the company is named, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa, with ingredients that are good enough for people to eat. I am back with Nicole Galland and her delightful book, original and fascinating book, Stepdog. It's a novel. It's so fun and so interesting and made me think, how much of this is real? This feels way too real. It's so genuine. Nicole, welcome to the show. It turns out a lot of it's very real, huh? Yes, yes, uh, yes. Quite a lot of it. Certainly at the beginning. I think it gets it gets closer to fiction as it, uh, as, it as the story goes along, but the premise is very, very much based in our real life. Unbelievable. Well, the part that I knew for sure was based in real life, I didn't know about the plot, but that you're married to an Irish actor, and this book is in the, 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 the voice of this man who falls in love with a woman with a dog, and he's never been around a dog before. And I thought, this is just so on the money. Boy, she's great at channeling this marvelous <laughs> Irish man. Now, it doesn't mean that just because you're married to one that you can write him. But boy, it's well, great. He was very helpful. Yeah, no, Billy was very, very helpful and hands-on in making sure that I got rid of the Americanism. Yes. And Used Irish phrases and stuff. That's so, what I yeah. loved. I loved that the genuine, the, the flavor and the savor of how he spoke and how he was thinking. It still doesn't make your artistry any the less because it's all very well to have someone explain it. It's another thing to make that character really come alive. But being a woman writer and having your main character be male and in the first person, that's a stretch. That's harder than if she'd been the girl, the gal, the woman who had the dog. And, you know, there's this dishy guy, but he doesn't know squat about dogs, right? Right. No, that's, you're, that's true. And actually, now that I think about it, what's kind of strange is, excuse me, every time I've written a book in the first person, it's always been a man. Wow. Aren't you I interesting? I don't know what that says about me, but I think that this one is the most successful at sounding genuinely male. And I also think that the fact that there was a genuine male helping me out with the language probably helped with that. Yes, and you're, you're a multiple novelist. I mean, you have five other novels. That's a lot. I mean, Yeah, most of them are historical fiction. This was my first contemporary one. Wow, how cool. I mean, so, you know, you're good at researching. 
right? Because historical fiction I, I is full. Sure. And you researched your yeah. own husband's way of thinking and talking. But when the book That's starts, totally it's, it's wonderfully surprising because you can see a pretty picture of a woman and a cool dog, and you're expecting the eye to be the female. So it's like, it's just in the first paragraph, you're like, this is a guy's story. This is a guy talking, and it's it's great. It's a, a really nice way to, to kind of turn the tables in a sense. Um, you're, mar- you're, you. you're married to actor Bill Milady, and you own Luco, a dog of splendid qualities, says the bio on the back. I understand that your husband is going to read the excerpt that I've picked out from the book, which is awesome because it'll sound a lot better with the genuine Irish actors speaking it than than you or me for that, that matter. That's absolutely true. I just want to, to clarify his name is Billy Malidi. Billy Malidi, there you go. So yeah, we're gonna got that really. clear acting acting coaches <laughs> and directors and casting people out there. It's Billy Malidi. Right. Got it. Uh, Thank you. Some before we ha- ask him to read from the book, and I'm not gonna tell what the story is other than, you know, you fall in love and one person's a dog person and one person isn't and how does he, he, the man who wasn't, work that into making the relationship work and become indispensable? And and the whole idea that somebody would dognap, which is her ex, it, it's a, mm-hmm. just a wonderful, I think, plot point. But you had something that happened very recently to your real-life dog on whom the dog in the book is based, which people don't always do that. You know, they have a corgi, and yeah. they kind of make it an English setter, which is all good and fine. I think we should use our own dogs. And and your dog is a great-looking dog. What kind of dog? My dog's a Portuguese water dog, which is not the breed in the book is different because they right. got this gorgeous piece of cover art that had a golden retriever on it. And yeah. they said, we would like to use this piece. And I said, you got it. Yeah. And it is really lovely. It's a it's a great it's a great piece. But and 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 I guess there's many more golden retriever owners and lovers out there than Porties. So it just makes it. I, I mean, other than the Obamas, who you know have have a, a, two. They were just copying me when they got there. I know people are such copycats. I mean, even the president has to just do what you do. You you That's recently right. had a, a very alarming experience. And while I don't want to take away from the the delight and importance of your book Stepdog and of the reading. I, I recently, well, not that recently, it was all, all of a, more than a year ago, had my dog attacked by another dog. And I talked about it a lot on the air. I had some behaviorists on to talk about it. Well, how did that affect a dog? How did that affect me? What is it that happens when another dog attacks your dog? And you don't have a foo-foo dog, and I mean foo-foo in the nicest way, a wee tiny thing that you already feel is vulnerable. I mean, a porty is a full-sized, vibrant, active, athletic sport dog. So they don't, one does yeah. not necessarily think of them as, you know, potentially a victim. Not, not, they don't have it written on their forehead, you know, go for me because I can't defend right, myself. Right. But at yeah. the end of the day, if a dog's going to attack your dog, and neither you nor your dog is expecting it, can you just say briefly what happened in case there's any part of the story that could help somebody else avoid such a situation or have a sense of how to deal with it? Um, I, I can try. I hope. I mean, luckily there was sort of there was a happy ending all around. But it, I mean, to the degree, except for the part where my dog was bitten and and is needs some medical treatment. That part's not good. Um, I was doing a reading of Stepdog, ironically, at a at a library, and on my way from the library back to the car, my husband and my dog were both with me. I try and take her with me um, to readings when I can. That's cool. Another dog, another dog, um, who belonged to someone inside the library. We're in a small rural area, so this isn't going to be quite as outrageous as it would be in a suburban or urban setting, but the owner of the dog was inside the library and the dog was alone outside the library and, uh, unwatched and not leashed and was young and very playful, but enormous, about 150 pounds. Holy cow. 
Yeah. Whoa. And, and jumped at Luco. I, I think just meaning to play, um, but a tooth landed right in her flank and and did some real damage. So, and I went running up into the library. I was kind of hysterical and said, "Is there, who's in there? Who's in there? Your dog just bit my dog." And luckily, her dog, as soon as it realized that Luca wasn't going to play with it, backed off. And uh, so there was no. It wasn't a dog fight. It wasn't. And it wasn't. A oh, that dog. was it lucky. Was a sort of clueless dog. Um, and the, the way that things are set up here um, in Massachusetts, that dog had to go. Both both my dog and her dog had been um, had rabies shots, so that was good. And her dog um, went into a 10-day quarantine, and she covered my vet bills. I did ask her to cover my vet bills, which she was completely willing to do. And the vet said that's a very reasonable thing. Yes. So, um, so that, that is actually the right solution to it, but you did try to immediately make sure that dog got quarantined. I didn't even know that that's what happened. Okay. I, the, the vet, I went to the vet saying, I don't want to have to pay for vet bills that... Are, that were incurred by somebody else's dog, but I don't want to get this woman and her dog in trouble because the dog's right. not evil, the woman's not evil. Right. Just, you know, it was an unfortunate situation, and it would be good if it didn't happen again. But I don't want, like, I don't want the dog being put down. Right. No. Absolutely right. And I don't know what the local rules are. Um, so, uh, so apparently, what happens is if your dog is the victim of a dog bite, the other dog has to be reported and has to be quarantined. And and in some places, um, there's kind of a three-strike rule for dogs, if I'm not wrong. Dogs are allowed to bite a certain number of people or other dogs before they're kind of face the gallows. It's it's a strange situation that it was a, a bite deep enough to require going to the vet. And what did the vet do? Just clean it out? The vet cleaned it out. And because it was so deep and it was a it was a bite that the, the other dog's saliva would be on it, and they were concerned that if they sewed it up, the bacteria yes. would stay in there and fester. So right now it's just this big gaping open wound that I'm dressing, um, I'm dressing is not the right word, I'm treating several times a day, and hopefully within 10 days it will have healed up on its own. It's a little hard to believe that right now because the two sides of the wound are not meeting each other. There's still, there's a gate. That's exactly what happened in, in the case of Maisie's wound on her chest, and she's she was then a nine-month-old, recently rescue-adopted Weimar honor, and it was open and, and almost went down to the tendon. That dog did 100% attack her while at a camp for humans and dogs to have fun together. So that was oh, not God. very fun at all. And I will say that if you think about the way dog bites are considered against humans, that the depth and the bite pressure are what count when assessing was that a serious bite. And breaking the skin, much less puncturing that deep, while it might have seemed a friendly puppy just trying to play, just that as an initial re reaction to another dog, that was an attack. I think it's really important now that you describe it and that people understand this. If someone says, oh, it's just a big, playful 150-pound puppy, that is an unsocialized, dangerous dog. No dog ever goes directly up to another dog and puts their mouth on them even open-mouthed with no bite pressure. It's not how dogs address each other. They're cautious. They're careful. Maybe their head's up. Maybe their head's down. Maybe their tail's up. Maybe their tail's down. They circle. They're cautious. They smell each other's two ends. There's no opening your mouth and clamping down. So you live in a small town in Massachusetts. It's important that nobody make pretend, oh, Billy was just playing in the play yard and happened to hit that other kid over the head with a Mac toy Mac truck, and my son has seven stitches, he was just playing. He actually wasn't. He was out of control aggressive. You have to kind of compare the two. Look at how most dogs greet each other. That's not the greeting. So 
I'm really sorry that your beautiful dog had to go through that. Thank God she had lots of fur, hair. Porties have a great thick kind of poodle-like coat. That probably right. protected her quite a bit. Save it away to get to the Yeah, moon. but it protected her. So imagine if she yeah, hadn't had point. that. I, I mean, if she was I like dog like that, mine or a pit bull, something with no fur at all, that would have been mm-hmm. even more of a of a tear. So really sorry you had to live through it. Um, but she's famous forever in stepdog, so that's a good thing, right? <laughs> We love that. We have to ask your husband to read this wonderful passage. Uh, Do you want to set it up a little bit? It's so hilarious because the whole idea of people taking their dog to McDonald's is a treat. I mean, those of us that are like dog foodie, it's like, oh, my God, I would never eat McDonald's. I wouldn't give it to my children. I wouldn't give it to my dog. But, of course, it's what all children and dogs and even some grown-up humans seem to crave. The food scientists are very clever. So set the scene up so that he can then read it. Okay, so let, I'll try and do this as succinctly as possible. The reader, the, the narrator, is a character named Rory. He has um, just recently married, well, I guess it's been a few months ago at this point. He's married a woman named Sarah who has a dog named Cody, whom she is very attached to and he is not as attached to. Um, although he tries, he really does. So something, I'm, I don't want to give too much of the story away, but the dog is, is essentially kidnapped and, um, and he's just gotten her back and is tremendously relieved. In the scene right before this, he actually pulls over to the side of the road after he's gotten her back and is, is sobbing because he's yes. trying to console himself. Which is very touching, um, given that he was not a dog person. He's become one. Right. But he, yes, but he's, yes, exactly. but she has the day job, and he's more like the stay-at-home dad, so he spends a lot of time with the dog. Yes, whether he wants to or not. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, so having gotten the dog back, he wants to do something that it, the, the, the McDonald's scene sort of falls into the realm of comfort food. He would not normally feed the dog. Right, right. Dog. It's a special they're treat. On the road. They're, right. They're in, a, they're in a strange part of the country. I think they're in North Carolina at that point. Um, on the road, he and the dog have to drive to Los Angeles in a Mini Cooper. And he doesn't know. He's in the middle of nowhere, and there's a McDonald's. He needs to eat. The dog needs to eat. He feels like this would be a treat, and so he decides that he's going to feed the dog from a McDonald's without, of course, telling her owner that. <laughs> and he knows that he can't tell her that. And he knows that he can't tell her that, yeah. That's definitely, that's, that's outside the box of what's acceptable. <laughs> All right, Billy, so, we'll, we'll welcome gonna, Billy to read it. Hello. Hello, Billy. Welcome. You must feel very, very chuffed, if that's the right word, to, to be such a big star in your wife's book. It's it's great. <laughs> and I was thrilled to learn that she all of her really um, authentic uh, aspects of your character came from you because you were authentically you. So she set up the scene. If you would be so good as to read it, it'll be a blast. Sure. Uh, you tell me when are you um, are we ready to go? Yes, sir. OK, here we go. I pulled up to the speaker, ordered a chicken sandwich for myself, and for Cody, a cheeseburger and chips. I mean, french fries. At the delivery window, I took the bag, set it down on the passenger seat. Cheers, I said to the snub-nosed, freckle-faced teenage boy who served me. Soundtrack, some kind of squeaky, clean, 50s medley. Really. As I pulled away, I reached in and pitched the whole container of chips over my shoulder onto the dog bed. How about it, Cody, I said. In the rearview mirror, I saw her stare in astonishment at the shower of forbidden goodies. She glanced up toward me almost guiltily. Okay, I said encouragingly. It's okay. Good girl. Loving me more than God. That's to say, Sarah. She nibbled, explored them, and then she went into a frenzy feed, whooping them down. They were gone in seconds. Whatever that Rwanda J-hole had done to spoil her, I bet she forgot all about it now. 
I headed west back into rural territory. <clears throat> the huge pines faded back and the road opened up, two lanes in each direction. The tarmac lay directly down on Mother Earth with a broad grass meridian and grass shoulders. It was a spectacular sunny day, the kind people write songs about and remember fondly from their childhood. About a mile past McDonald's, I pulled way over onto the broad grass shoulder of the road. I rolled down Cody's window and opened the sunroof, then gestured her to come up to the passenger seat. We sat there together, man and dog, enjoying our artery-clogging burgers as the sun warmed, the field gleamed green beside us. Well, I said to her as I finished, that promises some fantastic indigestion sometime soon. Let's stretch our legs. I got out of the car, went round to the passenger door, and called Cody out from the road. She glanced around the wide swath of green, taking it in, looked toward the shadows of the pines a hundred paces back from the highway. Then she looked at me and bowed and began hopping around in circles as if she had springs on all fours, studying me for a response. I cracked up laughing, but also felt my throat constrict. She was safe. She was here. She was cute. Don't tell Sarah I said it, but you're one super cute dog. Let's go. I took off running toward the pine forest. Cody reared into the air, hopped like a kangaroo, and then began to chase me. Her floppy ears blew back from her face, and the whites of her eyes showed like she was a crazed Chinese dragon. I ran as far as the start of the pines, but then stopped, the hastily consumed chicken lurching around uncomfortably within. Cody darted past me into the forest. Ten yards in, she stopped abruptly, amazed by the other worthiness in there, an overwhelming scent of pine with no undergrowth, little more than russet needles carpeting the springy shaded earth. She turned slowly in circles, looked round above herself like a little kid entering a cathedral for the first time. Awed but not really understanding why, she kept glancing at me in amazement as if I had built it for her. Nice one, huh, Cody? I said. Get a good whiff. I don't think they have this in L.A. With my voice, the spell was broken. She reared up again and dashed ecstatically toward me, wanting to chase me again. I made a face and a raspberry sound in her direction because I'm really mature like that. Then I turned and legged it back toward the car. Only when I got there, I turned to see she hadn't actually chased me. She'd stopped to eat grass. Like a hungry horse, she was chomping the entire mouthfuls of the stuff. Sarah once explained why dogs do that. At some point or other, Sarah had explained why dogs do everything. For an upset stomach, was it? So that was my bad. The fried food must have made her queasy. After a dozen or so chumps, she stopped grazing. She looked up and around, searching for me. She didn't seem as chipper as she had moments earlier. Hey, Cody, I called out. How you doing, pup? She gave me an accusatory look, then turned away as if trying to be discreet. And her torso began to heave. On instinct, I turned away too. A moment later, I heard, well, you can guess. Thank you, Billy. That was terrific. Couldn't have been better. Nicole, thank you so much. That was terrific. Got the whole flavor and, and feeling of the book. I know everyone's going to love Stepdog. It's absolutely thank marvelous. You. Congratulations on the book. And big kisses to Luco and hope that she feels thank 100% you. very soon. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care.